when someone asks you, who do you think you are? It's rarely because they genuinely don't know your identity. Uh, Rather, they clearly believe that you have overstepped your rightful place concerning what you have done or said. It's a rebuke to those who don't mind their place uh, and go beyond what is appropriate for their role. In, In the book of Jude, Jude took continued aim at at a group of heretics uh, who had snuck into the church to which he was writing and had begun to lead these Christians astray from the truth of Christ. He, he had multiple critiques throughout this short letter, but one of those critiques was that they had overstepped their place. They had acted above their true authority. Jude needed to ask them, who do you think you are? Now, If we can keep in mind that the epistle of Jude is about persevering in the truth. And the main exhortation is is that we need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Specifically because false teachers were advocating ideas to undermine God's grace and endorse, not just permit, but endorse immorality. And in, in Jude 5 to 10, we have a series of examples aimed at demonstrating the point of, from verse 4, that these ungodly teachers are designated for condemnation, for destruction. And just like unbelievers in Israel, angels who rebelled against God, and, and cities who flaunted their ungodliness were destroyed, so too these false teachers had no reason to think themselves safe from God's judgment. By falsely claiming that they received inspired dreams from God, they defended their godless practices, so distorted the truth to bend the church toward error in doctrine and in ethics. And now in Jude 9 and 10 which is where we focus today, he continued his attack upon these false teachers, this time concerning how they did not mind their proper place under God's authority. So the main point, the main point, is that God's people should enjoy living under God's clear instruction for our lives. God's people should enjoy living under God's clear instruction for our lives. Our first point is the emphasis. And we just want to get a hold of, of what the central thing happening in these two verses is. Now, as you may have noticed... As, as we have read through this book aloud in its entirety each week, there are a few tricky spots in Jude, uh, that, that may take a bit of, un, of work to untangle, and we have come to one of them today. Uh, I'm excited about that. God's Word is profitable for us. 
And I think this is a wonderful opportunity to open up some of the things that we don't consider as often. And here, in our two verses, the archangel Michael contends with the devil concerning the body of Moses. And I think we have to admit that is probably not one of the Bible's teachings that we turn to that often. Uh, But although the historical example of Michael, to which Jude uh, appealed, the example can seem obscure. His point... Uh, for the readers, actually, it is is very clear. It, it's easy to get distracted when we are surprised by unexpected teaching in Scripture as we read. But but if we refocus our, our attention and just read what's happening, the message is is rather obvious. And so in verse nine, Jude explained how Michael provides a good moral example of acting according to God's authority. Right? Michael is just a good moral example of acting according to God's authority. That's not as scary as what it seems at first. And, and then the main payoff here, right, is in verse 10, that the crucial point of these verses is how Jude makes a pointed contrast as he switches from discussing Michael is the good example to describing the heretics. So in contrast to Michael's conduct, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So the clear message is that Christians should be more like Michael, who kept to God's authority and less like the heretics. Now, with that main point in place, what do we make of the example about Michael? Uh, I, I think what, what we should do here is, is I want to read slowly through verses 8 and 9 and, and just kind of fill it out a little bit to establish what's happening. So, so if you keep your eyes on verses 8 and 9, I'll read them in kind of, uh, expand them a little bit to to help remind us what's really happening. So, in verse 8, Yet in like manner, so similar to those who were destroyed in verses 5 to 7, right? In like manner to those, these people, the false teachers, also relying on their dreams as a claim that God has, has revealed their false teaching to them, right? They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones who are the angels. But, which indicates a contrast with how the false teachers were appealing to invented divine revelation to approve their sin. But in contrast with that, uh, when, indicating a time frame, the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. And then it goes on to say, yeah, what Michael did. But we can pause there for, pause there for a second. Because I think what we need to do right now is note that the first half of verse 9, which is the complicated part, is a contrast to, to the false teachers inventing dreams that they claim are from God. Uh, and, and then it also provides the setting, this simply provides the setting for the main claim. 
left. So, although the account about Michael contending concerning Moses' body certainly grabs our attention, uh, the opening word, when, shows that this is simply the setting for the, the major point. Now, I think we might miss that because the setting is so striking. The, the sentence really functions something like, when I was walking down the street, I fell down. Which is not a, a complicated sentence. But because of, of the surprising setting, it comes across more like, when I was on my greatest adventure in space, I took a nap. You're right. So, so really we, we need to work to understand the example about Michael, but we also need to see that Jude's actual emphasis is not there, but in what he wrote next. That Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the first half of verse 9 really just provides a setting. And the second half lands the point that Michael did not render his own judgment, but leaned on what God said. So as Michael depends thoroughly on what God said, he is then strikingly different from the false teachers who have claimed insight into what the real truth is despite what God has said in His Word. So, for, for now, let's just note that the emphasis, the Jude's major emphasis is to contrast Michael's proper submission to God's authority with the false teachers who claim better insight than God's Word and and use that to defend their fleshly desires. That contrast is the emphasis, and and that's what we need to note for now. And let's turn to our second point, the example. Right, so now that we've established the, the central premise of verses 9 and 10 as a contrast between those who invent their own teaching and Michael who depends on God's Word, now we need to see what sense we can make of Jude's actual example. So, so what is going on as Michael contended with the devil to dispute about Moses' body? Now, first, I think the first issue here uh, is, is a question about where Jude got this story. It, it's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, it does, however, appear in an intertest, a book written between the Old and New Testaments uh, called The Testament of Moses or alternatively titled The Assumption of Moses. Now, Jude has a habit uh, of appealing, of referring to material from books like this that are not part of our regular reading uh, as we try to understand Scripture. And it could be very easy for us to get nervous about that, that Jude is citing these extra-canonical books. We should keep in mind, though, that those ancient intertestamental books are, are controversial for us because in the 16th century, Roman Catholicism 
claimed that some of them are inspired scripture. Now, that was a long time after Jude wrote. And that debate was not on Jude's mind. So I think it's important that we notice that as he referred to these other books, he he never used a phrase like or similar to it is written. Right? That's not there. And that's crucial because that is how the New Testament authors tend to indicate that they are appealing to authoritative scripture. So he doesn't give us the signals that he's citing scripture, that, that he's citing inspired, God's inspired word. So just like I might draw a quote from uh, the confession or John Calvin, or another reformer, or a history book, if I'm using an example, uh, and appeal to that as something that says something that is genuinely true, even though it's not inspired, so too Jude refers to other writings as, uh, in this case, a particular writing, as if as though it records a true event, even though that writing is not inspired scripture. Other other books write down things that are true. They're just not inspired. And that's what happened here. Jude notes a true event recorded in a different book. And that book happened not to be inspired. So I, I think, I hope that helps give you a handle on some of the citations in Jude. And that will be important as we move ahead in this book. But as for the example itself... Um, I, th- I think the first thing we can say about this cont- this dispute between Michael and the devil is that it's not physical battle, but a courtroom contending. It's a dispute. This dispute was a legal dispute looking for a, a proper verdict. And, and so essentially, Michael, the archangel, and the devil are the two attorneys arguing for the just outcome concerning something about Moses' body. And that's especially clear when we consider the outcome of this dispute and how Michael did not render a blasphemous judgment, but spoke the Lord's words. He spoke, which means this is a verbal battle. And and so the judgment that he he did not presume to give on his own was a judgment call, a verdict. It, it would have been blasphemous if Michael had rendered a verdict based on his own authority, like the false teachers were doing. But instead, he worked within God's authority and delivered God's own verdict. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that shortly. But we see now that, yeah, let's just note for now that Michael had a legal dispute with the devil. And this dispute was about Moses' body. Uh, Now, there's not a clear consensus about the nature of this legal battle Uh, in in terms of its content. If we recall the account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34, which is there on your 
uh, order of service. As Israel enters the promised land, now under Joshua's leadership, Moses goes up a mountain and, and God lets him view the promised land. And, and then Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he, bar- he being God, God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. I think it's very significant that God himself buried Moses. Um, But it it prompts most scholars about Jude uh, in terms of that story, that event. It prompts most scholars to think that the dispute in Jude about Moses' body relates to its final resting place. Something about its final resting place. Namely, two options are before us. Was the debate between Michael and the devil about should, should Moses even get a proper burial? Uh, likely with the devil uh, as the accuser, the prosecutor bringing out all of Moses' sin and saying, look, God, he doesn't even deserve to be buried. Or, on the other hand, was the dispute about leaving Moses' body buried in this valley so the devil may have wanted uh, Moses' body to go with the people of Israel, knowing their tendency towards idolatry would lead them using it sacrilegiously as an object of worship. A relic, so to speak. Now, personally, I find the second one more convincing, but I actually don't think it matters that much which one of those you pick. Because, because the main point we should see either way, either way, is that God takes good care of his people even after we die. If the debate was about Moses even being buried, well, then Deuteronomy very clearly reveals that God did ensure that Moses' guilt was not held against him and he was laid to rest. If Michael was disputing to protect Moses' body from being used for idolatry, well, then God protected his foremost servant of the time from being turned into a reason for godlessness. And so Christian... We know that our lives are fragile, don't we? We know that when when we are young or old, terrible things can happen to us at any moment to lead to our deaths. Whenever, and for whatever reason, though, that we that we die. Jude shows us good reason why as you come to the end of your pilgrimage in this age, you have no reason to worry. 
your God will care for you. God buried Moses to care even for his body. Your whole person, body and soul, even as we die, is in God's hands. Listen to Westminster Shorter Catechism 37. I I think this is so striking, and I think we don't catch it all the time, though. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And now, pay attention here. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Not just your soul, but your body, your whole person, remains united to Christ even as you pass into death. And as Christ receives your soul in heaven, he indeed gives rest to your body as it lays in your grave until he restores it to you in perfection at the resurrection. Christian, God cares for you, body and soul, in this life and in the next. And not only just that, but we see also in Jude that he uses his most powerful servants to accomplish that. He sent Michael, the archangel, the the head angel, a head angel, to handle this issue. It's not just that God generally controls all things as the omnipotent Lord, that is true. Yet also he sends his angels to work on behalf of his people so that he has a servant accomplishing his will very literally right next to you as you go through trial. Sometimes we we speak, I mean, even just popularly, of something like guardian angels. And I, yeah, we should not think of that as if each one of us has an angel assigned to us at all times. But is there truth to it? Yeah. God uses legions of his angels for the good of all of his people. Angels are at work around us bringing about God's decrees, not separate from our Lord, but as his servants, his ministers on our behalf. Hebrews 2 tells us that. 
we are not limited to one angel as a guardian angel. As God uses hosts of angels to defend us, perhaps, perhaps, as Jude makes clear, even after our bodies lay in their graves. So the example then gives us great encouragement, I think, as we see not only a not only a model of submission to God in Michael, but also an instance of how God remains constantly good to his people. And that brings us to our final point, our exhortation. So we have the emphasis, the example, and our exhortation. The, the main idea in verses 9 and 10 is, is that contrast between the false teacher's hubris in, in claiming better insight to the truth than God's word. And on the other hand, Michael, who depended upon what God says. Michael's example in the event itself gives us rich material for devotional reflection. I hope we've gotten some of that. But, but we also need to pay attention to Jude's intended point. He is driving at that contrast between working under God's authority and inventing our own religion. And we have to reckon with that. The difference between working under God's authority and inventing our own religion. Michael's dependence on God's authority is clear in his response to, to what the devil said. Um, to, to the devil when he said, uh, sorry, the Lord rebuke you. So that's his, that's his reply in this situation. And that situation, that, that, uh, that statement, maybe you caught it in our readings, is a, is a citation from Zechariah 3 2. Now, Zechariah was not written when Moses died. So Jude's point was not that Michael quoted that scripture. But Zechariah 3 records another dispute, another legal dispute between the devil and an angel. And there the devil tried to accuse Joshua, the high priest, before God's courtroom. And as the defense attorney, uh, God and then the angel of the Lord replied, uh, with the verdict that comes from God's words. The Lord rebuke you. God, as the ultimate judge, rebuked the devil for his wickedly devised case against the Lord's people. And Jude's point in quoting Zechariah is that Michael followed the same pattern of, of receiving the proper verdict from God as the judge before running to assert his own will in the situation, Michael took his direction as one under God's authority. And by contrast, the false teachers have jumped headlong into false religion by pretending that God had approved their godlessness in their dreams. So verse 10, they blaspheme God whom they do not truly know by claiming that God had approved their wickedness. By thinking with their fleshly desires, 
that they had intuited from nowhere. And by pretending that God approves their wickedness, they slander the Lord. And so show themselves to be those who are headed for destruction. Our exhortation then is twofold. First, we must contend for the faith by making sure that we and our leaders are true to what God has said. Right? The exhortation of this letter is contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we, we have a method here. Contend for the faith by making sure that we and the leaders in our church are true to what God has said. So there's a general application uh, for that point through throughout our lives as we seek the Lord, right? That, that we want to be faithful to what God said in his word. Uh, we visit that point here often. So uh, I want to go to something more pointed that in this season here at LCPC, as, as we are, the search for our next pastor is fresh on our minds, right? Make sure that you prioritize candidates that week after week after week will point right at the words of the Bible. It's, it's easy for pastors and a common temptation to overstate our position by brandishing a title. Right? The minister. I'm a pastor. Reverend. Whatever. But you're looking for a man who is more interested in the direct words of Scripture than preferences. We need a leader who is humble and excited about God's word. And that is the man who will keep us, continue the legacy of keeping us faithful to the Lord in the years ahead. Second, right? we contend for the faith by seeing our personal need not to go beyond what is written. We cannot go beyond what is written, as Paul says elsewhere. We need to know who we are. Right? If, we, if the question is, who do you think we, you are? We need to know who we are. And we need to know our place. And we have a propensity for, to explain away our desires until we convince ourselves that God approves of them. It's not that we're selfish. We just want good things that God probably wants to give us. It's not that we're lustful. We just like to admire beautiful things that God has made. What if we start with the stark reality of sin that destroys our soul and and wrestle with the fact that our old selves still like to assert themselves? And so we have to go to what God has said rather than explaining away our desires. When we, when, when we realize how easy it is to, 
find ways to indulge ourselves, well, in light of that, it actually becomes very freeing to rest on the Word of God to direct our lives. It clears away those those lingering things that we don't know if we can trust our thoughts or not. And we realize that God has not left us without statement about how to follow Him. He speaks through His Word. He addresses us in the Scripture so that we are not left blind as to how to know the true God and know how to follow Him. There is joy in reading the Scripture knowing that God has painted the path to know Him. We need not look for it. We need not stumble around. We need not consider all of the options. God has spoken very plainly. And for those who have heard God's Word, Primarily, it's, it's summons to believe in Christ. Well, in contrast to the false teachers, we have confidence that we will not be destroyed. Those who invent their own way to God and invent even their own God are very clearly destined for destruction. But for those who have heeded the Scripture, that we need not dream our way to God, but hear our way to God through the Gospel message, we possess life. Christ's death has the payment for the forgiveness of our sins, has placed us beyond condemnation. And in any instance, now, in the future, at the last day, the Lord will rebuke our accuser on behalf of everyone who believes in Christ and will usher us into his everlasting life with him. Let's pray. Father God, we see our need to be attentive to your word. We have this example that shows us how dangerous it is to try to invent our own religion, to dream our way to God. And we pray, Lord, that we will be more like Michael, who leans on the things that you have said than upon his own judgment. Help us to be people content with how the Scripture would guide us, and to be people who enjoy throwing ourselves into the direction of Scripture, happy that God has indeed spoken about how we might know You and how we might follow You. It is freeing to think we need not have the right dream, the best intuition, in order to find our God. It is a joyous thing to know that you have given us all that we need in the deposit of your scripture. And we pray that we would cherish that. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.